welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good morning, Covenant. Good to see you. If you're a guest with us, especially if this is your first time with us, my name is Joel and I'm one of the pastors here. I do hope that you'll take Pastor Dave's advice and fill out one of these blue cards. Let us know you're here. Uh, as I say every Sunday, just to promise you, we don't do unannounced visits. Uh, we don't do high pressure stuff, but it, it just gives us a, an opportunity to be, make a connection with you, to know how you found us and to know how we can pray for you. And, and so I hope that you'll do that uh, before the service is over. We're in 1 John chapter 2 this morning as we continue a series called One Another. We're going to talk this morning more specifically about the practical steps to build the new community that John is talking about and and lay the foundation for that new community. There was a man named John Lennon. And John Lennon once said that all you need is... Wow. I didn't know there were that many hippies in the room. He had this vision, didn't he? in the midst of a really, actually, let's be honest, it was a time much like our own in the sense that it was greatly divided. There was a lot of polarization. People couldn't find their way through it. And and in the middle of that, Lennon tried as best he could at least to give the world a vision of this sort of utopian society where everybody walked hand in hand and everybody got along with one another. And a lot of people made fun of him for that. In fact, his his murderer in December 1980 thought so little of that vision that he took Lennon's life by his own confession simply so he could be just as famous as Lennon. Anybody know his name, by the way? Yeah, that doesn't work. That idyllic world gave, well, the world of the 1960s a reason to be cynical because it just seemed elusive at the time, seemingly impossible. And even all these decades later, it seems impossible, doesn't it? How on earth can fallen human beings create that kind of community? I'm going to say something this morning that I think you probably never heard a, a preacher say. John Lennon was absolutely right. He was. All you need is love. Now, he wasn't right about communism being the thing that brought it about. He wasn't right about wiping religious conviction away. But he was right about that big picture, all you need is love. The issue is not the statement. The issue is one's understanding of love. And the problem is not that it's untrue that all you need is love. The problem is that neither Lenin nor anyone else in wider culture really understands what love means. And the reason for that is because we define it in so many different ways. You just think about the, the variety of applications. Some of you used that word when you walked in here this morning. One, one of you, one of our sisters, saw another sister in Christ and complimented her outfit. And you might have said, I love that color on you. That might have been a little different application of the term than when you rolled over and, and saw your beloved in bed this morning and told them, I love you. That means, different. That means something different, doesn't it? I love my truck, I love my family, I love my children, I love my Clemson Tigers, and I love my Pittsburgh Steelers, even though they're not playing tonight. And I, I, think, I think we know intuitively 
when we say those things that we're using the same word while simultaneously filling it with a much different level of substance and meaning every single time. And so it would obviously and understandably create some confusion when you would say something like, all you need is love. All you need is love. Because the word gets so overused, it seems really naive to believe that. But there's a difference, isn't there? between loving your sports teams and loving your hobbies and loving your you know, objects of possession and loving, for example, your family or your spouse. And that's the kind of love that John is talking about. And we know that because, thankfully, the Greek language into which our New Testament was written actually delineates for us different kinds of love. The Greek language is much more precise. It uses words like eros, which describe an erotic kind or a sexual, physical uh, relationship of love. It uses words like philos. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, the love that siblings have for one another. It uses words like storge, the, the love of a deep, deep friendship. But it also uses the word agape, a word that, that really is attributed ultimately to God as its origin. And that's the word that John is using here. And this John, not John Lennon, but the author of 1 John is right when he tells us all we need is love. Because the love he talks about is the same love that we see in another very famous passage. In John 3.16 we read, God loved the world in such a way that he gave his one and only son. The passage we're going to look at this morning not only affirms that all you need is love, but we're given specific instructions on how to build a new community with precisely that kind of love. And we live in a world, I think, that proves our need for that kind of community. Because we live in a world that, in case you haven't noticed, plays favorites. It segregates. No matter how much it tries not to, no matter how much it tries to equalize everything, we live in a world that segregates, that separates, that plays favorites based on any number of factors. Sometimes it's economics. There's a, a socioeconomic level or threshold, if you will, below which you may not get access into things that people above that line might get into. Sometimes it's our political views, the parties, especially in an election year, become increasingly intolerant, especially as you get closer to the general, of any departure from party platform orthodoxy. Sometimes it's our media choices. Sometimes it's our age. We think about the way younger people and older people sometimes judge each other and size each other up, all the Karens and the Boomers and the Zers and all that kind of stuff. All right, we just throw that out there just to, to dismiss the argument or because something annoys us. And of course, we, this happens according to ethnicity and race because on this continent, everybody in this room is trapped in a 400-year history that we did not create and are not responsible for, but the effect that it has on our surroundings is inescapable. And we have to find some way forward, but every time we start to talk about it, it's become, how's this for irony, segregated. That's what happens. And it just seems to me like our world, with all of its talk of allies and tolerance and love, is actually a very loveless place. Have you thought about that? I mean, in many ways, this world really isn't all that different from the ancient world in which John writes. And, and in that environment, he tells his readers, there's a way in the middle of all that to build a new kind of community, a community where people treat each other like family, regardless of any of those other categories, where they do that for now and for all of eternity. And in the words of Lennon, all you need 
is love. And we've already learned from this powerful short letter how we can walk in the light of the gospel together in the power of Jesus' own advocacy. We learned just last week I can be humble before my brothers and sisters. I can admit my wrong. I don't have to play whataboutism. I don't have to blame shift. I don't have to equivocate. I have an advocate right next to me, so I don't have to worry about my brothers and sisters who also have that advocate next to them piling on to me or trying to cancel me or doing something. Everybody can be honest with each other. Today, John, again, kind of like a wise grandfather, is writing to people from his generation and at least two subsequent ones, and he's going to give us some very practical steps toward that end. So let's take a look at four ways that he tells us how to build the new community. How do we do this? This is where we get into the bricks and mortar, the rubber meets the road kind of stuff. Number one, obey the timeless command. Verse 7, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. It's not new, it's old, but it's also new. Are you confused yet? All right. When something is both one and the same time new and old, that's the very essence of what it means for something to be timeless. That's what it means. Something so good and something so beautiful that at its core, it's never going to be affected by changing. You may apply it in different ways depending on where you are and when you are, but, but it's never, the core of it will never be affected by changes in fashion or values or, or society as a whole. And in its older form, John is likely thinking of passages in the Mosaic Law like Leviticus 19. Let's look at one of those together. Beginning in verse 17, he says, you shall not hate your neighbor, your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We've seen that somewhere before, haven't we? I am the Lord. Not new. That's very old, even from the standpoint of John. It's a very old command in the sense that your ancestors, he's telling them, were given this command. Don't bear a grudge. Don't harbor hate. Don't, you need to love others as you would yourself. But it's also a new. It's a new command. And new here doesn't refer to chronological age so much as it does to quality. Think of a song remix, all right? Sung again by somebody different than the original artist. Most of the time, if we'd be honest, when we hear a remix or we hear a cover, the best we can give it is, is kind of a four out of five stars, right? Most of the time. We look at it and we listen to it and we say, oh man, that, was, that, wasn't, that really wasn't bad. But surely they didn't think they could sing that as good as the Eagles. Man, she's got a phenomenal voice, but she ain't no Linda Ronstadt. Right? We all know like there's an original. But every once in a while, you hear a remix and you go, man, I really like what they did with that. I really like the turn they gave that. And so what we're finding in 1 John is the remix of Leviticus 19, this timeless truth that's now applied to the whole new world of the first century. And, and this is the remix. Darkness is passing away and a new light is shining. That's a description of what we might call first light. And my fellow hunters know what first light is because you've got to get out and you stand before then, right? So that, that picture there, that's not first light, is it? What is that? 
That's sunrise. All right, the next picture will show you first light. It's coming about any time now. Or maybe it's not. Okay. Well, I had one. I don't know what happened to it. But at any rate, it's dark outside. And right on the horizon, there's this little sliver of light, right, that's just there. And you look around and you're like, it's not there. No, first light means it's just the cracking of the dawn, but it's still dark outside. I want you to think about that. The darkest part of the night in those early morning hours starts to give way to a new day. And John's telling his readers, that's the moment we're in right now. It's still dark. There's a lot of shadow. It's difficult to see clearly. It's hard to figure things out. But look at the horizon. Dawn is about to crack. Light has broken. He's describing what happened when Jesus came. The truth that, that, that was, John says, in him, timeless truth, First spoken in Leviticus, now incarnated in a man. And what did that man do? He loved. He loved a woman of ill repute named Mary. He loved a tax cheat named Zacchaeus. He even loved Judas who betrayed him to authorities, who continued to love through it all. And nobody in the ancient world had ever seen a love like this. His first coming was first light. And it let us know sunrise is coming. Sunrise, a whole new day is coming. John's saying it is inevitable. It is just as unstoppable. If you're one of those crazy people that gets up at 530 in the morning so that you can watch the sun come up, you know it's coming, right? You wouldn't get up if you thought there might be a chance it wouldn't happen. John says this light is coming. It is just as unstoppable as the sunrise. And that timeless truth, he says, it can be lived right here, right now. We live in a world that's always seeking allies. Have you noticed that? The LGBT community needs allies. The gun rights community needs allies. And what are allies? Well, they're groups of people, and they have various interests, and they want people on their side. But here's the thing about allies. Eventually, even within that tribe that's allied together, there's going to be a disagreement. You know why? Because there's two of you. That's why. And eventually when that disagreement comes, that, that, that ally relationship goes away because the basis of your relationship was no deeper than just the issue that you were working on. If that's it, if that's all you've got, John's saying there's a new community with a higher value than that. Much higher than just being allies. Much higher than just a relationship that is conditioned on us always seeing things the same way. If, if you don't have something deeper than that, eventually the ally relationship goes away. And you might even become enemies at some point. You know, I've lived long enough now that, that I've seen nations like Iraq be an ally to the United States, then an enemy to the United States, and then an ally to the United States again. Some of you are, are so young, you're like, really? That happened? And then some of you are like, oh, yeah, I read that about that in the history books in school. Yeah, it, it, it's, it changes constantly. Why? Because it's conditional, isn't it? There's a different kind of and better community than that is what John is telling us. And it's better because it's grounded in something timeless 
and something that's not conditioned. So we obey the timeless command. We do it secondly by practicing righteous love. He goes on in verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, we tend to think in binary, so let's, let's unpack something here. John's not assuming and John is not commanding that all of us in this room always got to be holding hands and burning candles and singing kumbaya and pretending like we're getting along even if we're not. Okay, that's not what's in view here. That's called baloney. That never happens. Dead gummit, people, that don't even happen in a marriage, amen? It's just not always going to be that way. Sometimes we won't see eye to eye. So this, that's not the picture here. The word hate here is a present perfect. It signifies intentional, present tense, habitual action. All right? So all of us are going to struggle with other people. That's going to happen, especially in a faith family this large. So it's not the feeling of awkwardness because somebody else in this fellowship rubs you the wrong way. That's going to happen. If that's, I mean, if that's true, then I'm guilty. I mean, I've, I've told some of our staff, I mean, y'all love y'all, but you make me nuts sometimes. And, and if they're honest, they tell me the same thing. Pastor, you make me nuts too. But you learn to love each other. You learn to love each other. John has in view someone whose life is characterized by hatred. And then there's some debate about this word brother. Is he talking about brother, brothers in humanity or is he talking about brothers in Christ? And my, my contention is that Jesus settled that in his earthly ministry when he gave us parables about Samaritans and invited us into stories about Roman centurions and chose tax collectors to be his disciples. But even if this only means your Christian brother, I want you to think about the application of this because within the church, within the original 12, you had Matthew, a tax collector who propped up the system, and Simon the zealot whose life mission before he met Jesus was to burn the whole system down. Y'all think Republicans and Democrats are impossible to reconcile. We think right and left like there's this inevitable split. You all have no idea if you think that way how horribly bad it was in the first century. And Jesus picked people from both sides and he put them on his team. Jews and Gentiles. In fact, Luke tells us in Acts, we've got deacons here that serve. We've got others. Hopefully, they're men and women, and they're coming online soon. Did you know that the office of deacon originated in Acts chapter 6 in a moment of racial tension? And the, and the, the pastors, the elders, the apostles were like, we don't, we're not quite sure what to do about this. We don't know how to move forward. You had Jewish widows and Greek widows that were beginning to turn on each other. And the early church was working through all of this. And the office of deacon arose to try to deal with it, to be the white blood cells, if you will, to go to that infection that we might call division and to work on it. And then they learned in the middle of all of that that righteous love and hatred cannot perpetually coexist in the same soul. So here's the logic behind all of this. It's okay to be awkward. It's okay to not agree. It's okay if people rub you the wrong way. But the issue is not to hate but to love because Jesus loved everybody. Jesus died for everybody. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe. Okay, Something to think about. Listen, I'm not a pacifist. 
I'm a just war guy. I'm not saying there are not times to go to war. I am saying even when it is time to go to war, we need to remember we have brothers and sisters in Christ in Gaza and in Iran and in other places around the world. That changes our perspective just a little bit. may not change our position, but our perspective needs to widen a little bit. Jesus died for every nation, tongue, and tribe. And so to follow him is to see our common identity in him as primary and hatred for others, regardless of the reason, is a sign of an unregenerate heart. You are, John says, still in darkness. Over and over he emphasizes this. Coming to a climax in in verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He's somebody that at first light before sunrise gets down out of the tree stand in the middle of unfamiliar territory and he stumbles around because he doesn't know which way is up. That's who this person is. People who belong to Jesus practice righteous love by seeing every other identity as secondary to their faith. Now, what's that look like? That's going to take a lot of unpacking, isn't it? And John is tying the legitimacy of faith, not primarily to what you say you believe, but to your ethical practice. What he's saying is, if your ethics don't follow, then you don't really believe what you say you believe. You look at another member of this congregation, you look at another member of the larger body of Christ, you look at another member of the human race, do you, above and beyond all else, see someone for whom Jesus gave his life? That's the only way to practice the righteous love that he modeled for us. So if we're going to build this community together, we have to obey a timeless command. We have to practice this righteous love, the same love that Jesus practiced. Thirdly, we do that by treating each other like family. Look what he says in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. I'm just going to tell you, I don't think John is speaking metaphorically here. I believe he sees the church as a large extended family. He begins by addressing little children. And then he speaks to them as though there's this large family reunion and and every generation is present. Children would have been anybody pretty much under the age of 13. And then he addresses young men. That was the general designation of any, any male under the age of 40. And then fathers, regardless of age. And then he has descriptions, encouragements for each of them. Young and old occupied places of, of real importance. And so you know the kind of love that John speaks about here isn't being practiced when any generation in the church starts thinking primarily of themselves rather than the church as a whole. That's a sore spot in a lot of churches. That's a sore spot, but, it, but it's something we've got to recognize. Somebody of a certain age, a young adult, a senior adult comes along and says, there's not enough here for me. What do you have for me? The question is, is the church a shopping mall? 
where the young people go to Gap and the old people go to, I don't know, whatever took the place of J.C. Penney? What about us? That's not new community language. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. So, to my older brothers and sisters, who some of you are old enough to be my parents who are here, do not look down on someone merely because they're young. Statements like, I got socks older than you, are not helpful. <laughs> they're just not. And you should throw those socks away. I'm just <laughs> going to say that. Be careful how you speak. But then to the young, he says, this is how you set the example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. And then we have other descriptions. Isaiah 46, 4 promises that the old, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. Proverbs 16, 31, contrary to our plastic surgery mad world, says that gray hair is a crown of glory and it is gained in a righteous life. Scripture repeatedly reminds us that every generation, for as long as we live, will have a role of importance and responsibility to the larger faith family. So the question is, do we treat each other that way? It's not wrong to have age-graded ministries. It's not. I get that question sometimes. There's a whole movement out there. There's actually one guy, and he's like, there was no youth ministry in the Bible, and I've never met him. I know him. Seems to be a pretty good guy. But I just, I, some, one of these days I'm going to meet him. There was no youth ministry in the Bible. Yeah, there weren't, any, there weren't any air conditioning either. And you know what? Oh, you're a full-time guy? There were no full-time salaries for pastors in the first century either. Um, there were a lot of things that they didn't have that we do. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have those things. We've got to watch what we do here. But we are one family of faith. So, so here are the two questions I think that, sort of roll out of this. Because again, John's just saying young men, older men, fathers, little children, everybody. Two questions. The first one is, has your spiritual growth reached the maturity level that's appropriate for your age, your stage of life, right? If you're, if you're, in, your, if you're in your early 70s and have the emotional maturity of a 12-year-old, that's not good. Right? You got habits that you still haven't kicked. My goodness, you're in your 70s. How likely is it that you'll do it now? If you're young and you know everything, got everything figured out, that was me. I, was, I took my first lead pastor role at 26. Y'all can thank the Muldrow Baptist Church for giving me just a tad bit more humility than I had when I first went there. And they hired me in spite of what I'm about to tell you. Because I'm going to tell you, at 52 years of age, if I had a pastor say what I said in that interview, he'd be, that, that resume would have been right in the trash. I don't know why they hired me in retrospect. But they, they said, they said, you know, we kind of we see it as, as our calling to bring in young men and help train them up while they're still in seminary uh, to be good pastors. So we, we have a lot of short-term pastors around here, but what happened, they end up going somewhere else, and, and, and we've just learned to be okay with that because we kind of see it as our call to, to raise them up. And my 26-year-old self said, well, I appreciate that, but I ain't coming to be trained. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. They, uh, they hired me anyway. 
And you know what they did? They trained me. They trained me. No one is as clueless or as dangerous as somebody thinking about ministry at the second year seminary student level. Just going to say that. Slow your roll. That's what I say to the young people. Slow down. You pump the brakes here. Listen more than you speak and learn. Has your spiritual growth reached the maturity level appropriate for your stage of life? Here's question number two. Do other generations in this family benefit from you? And if you want to know, ask them. Ask them. You know, our tech booth just gathered for prayer about 15 minutes before the service, and about two-thirds of them are below the age of 30. So those of you watching from home who are, particularly if it's because there's an ailment there or there's a chronic illness or there's something like that, and some of you have reached a stage of life maybe where you're not as mobile as you used to be, the younger generation is an enormous blessing to you. I can just testify to that. But you have to ask yourself that. And then you have to ask those other generations. This is what it means to treat each other like family. So we obey a timeless command by practicing righteous love in the confines of the local church, treating each other like family. Here's the final thing. you got to live like it's forever because it is. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now let's, let's unpack his meaning here and let's do it in, in light of the fact that he tells us in the gospel of John that God himself loves the world. So what does it mean? to say don't love the world when God does love the world. John is speaking of the world system. When he says don't love the world, he's not saying don't love people who are different, don't love people because they're human, don't love people because they're part of a culture. Sometimes in the church we have this uh, conflation of worldliness with culture. There are things about culture that can be worldly. There are also things about culture, even if it's not Christian, that reflects the image of God. And, and so our, our temptation is to broad brush and just say anything cultural has to be worldly. Culture is just like somebody's house. It's just where they live. And so John is not saying to not love culture. God created culture. God created human beings who then gave birth to various cultures around the world. Those things are a reflection of his image, okay? We just, we've just been told in the last three chapters to do the exact opposite, to love people, to love culture, to let that be without uh, regard for class or language or, or anything else. I mean, when we send you to Southeast Asia now, we require you to take a day-long class. Why do we do that? Because if you go over there and you turn your nose up at their food and you look condescendingly on their culture and you laugh with derision at their beliefs, it'd be better if you just stayed home. It would. And maybe grow up a little bit. We love people. We love the cultures that people create. That doesn't mean we mindlessly accept every cultural value. But, but here's how you tell the difference. The world system that John tells us not to love here is defined in three ways. The desires of the flesh, anything that appeals to your sin nature. The desires of the eyes and the pride of life. 
Pride of life, that word life, bios. We get our word biology, biography, all of that from it. Greater, when you attach anything that would tell you to put greater value in this physical realm and the pleasures that it offers. If those things carry a greater value to you, then that constitutes a greater love for the world. And the point is not asceticism, denying yourself all kinds of things merely for the purpose of denying it. It is that lifelong passion for anything that is temporary or held imprisoned in this life is a bad investment. And it's contrasted here with love of the Father. So here's the big idea. If I'm part of a church family, I'm part of a community that is going to last, not just a lifetime, but for the rest of eternity. For the rest of eternity. That's what John tells us. He says it abides forever. It remains. When everything else is gone, when all the allies have joined the other teams, when the world has reset itself again with a new order of who's against who, and we continue in the middle of all of that to build this new community that's consistent and timeless and reflective of relationships that will never, ever end. As we practice love, we do it like it lasts forever, because it will last forever. Nothing in the world can accomplish this. Only the gospel can do that. Over 30 years ago, there was this photo in Life magazine. If you've seen it, if, you've, if you're old enough that you've seen this picture, when I start to describe it, it's going to immediately come back to you because it's that graphic. It's a picture of a 10-year-old boy in Bogota, Colombia named Jason. He's playing the flute. But if you get up close in the picture, you realize he has no eyes. Uh, they're just gone from his sockets. And the story behind that picture is that when he was 10 months old, his mother took him to a hospital in Bogota for some diarrhea that she couldn't get to stop. They advised her to leave him overnight and to come back and get him the next day. And when she did... She found him sitting up in the bed, bandages over his eyes, dried blood all over him. Doctors dismissed her panic and her questions. She rushed him to another hospital in the city where they broke to her the, the horrible news. They have stolen your son's eyes. See, even today, there's this healthy set of, a healthy set of eyes is needed for cornea transplants for very wealthy people around the world, and they're willing to pay sometimes a hefty price on the black market for someone else who might be willing to stoop to the level of stealing the eyes of a 10-year-old boy. Now, that, that pit in your stomach when you hear stories like that, I want, you to, I want you to nourish that for a moment because what we're told in the Scriptures is that we have an enemy far more sinister than that, and he too is an eye thief. He's an eye thief. There's a reason that Scripture calls him the prince of darkness. He wants to make you blind. He wants to keep you blind. And our older brother John just told us the primary way he does that, through hatred, putting hatred in your heart, giving you hatred toward another person. You can't walk in the light and hate your brother. Now, here's the good news. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus' love through the Holy Spirit's presence fills us. It overflows out of us to others. And John's declaration is when this happens among believers, the result is there's a new kind of community that emerges. You want to be part of something like that? That's the question this morning. 
Because in God's power, that's exactly the kind of community that you and I can create right here. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for timeless words like this, that in moments like ours, when there's so much darkness, when there's so much angst, when there's so much division, that you give us light and that you remind us that for 2,000 years there's always the possibility to build new community in those kinds of environments, to be the light of the world, to be the city set upon a hill. God, give us by your grace what we need as a church family to build that community. If there are those here this morning who don't know you as Savior, Lord, I pray that today they would come to know the light of the world, that the, the blinders would be pulled from their eyes, and that they would come and receive you as Lord and Savior. So, Lord, be with us in these few moments of response, and we will thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.